Greetings all. Welcome back to the Everyday Hope Podcast. I'm glad to be with you again. And may I say with cautious optimism, Happy New Year. Yeah, you know, I hate to say it like that, but 2019 ended very badly for me. And I was so optimistic about 2020, and then, you know, 2020 turned out to be like a Hoover vacuum. So, yeah, cautious optimism. And an earnest prayer that 2021 is better for all of us. Now, in this episode, we're going to tackle Revelation 14, which is an odd chapter. It's got three distinct sections. The vision of the Lamb and the 144,000. Messages from three angels. And the harvest of believers and unbelievers. And like most of the chapters in this book, there's a bit of disagreement and discussion over what these three sections are telling us. So I guess we should start with those issues and the three arguments that come out of them, right? So here are the three basic arguments that most scholars have about this chapter. And the three issues are, one, whether or not the 144,000 on Mount Zion represent all Christians or some special subset of them. Two, whether or not there are two harvests or just one told from two different points of view. And third, whether unbelievers are tormented for all eternity or are destroyed and simply cease to exist. Now, as an aside, I bet there are three kind of responses to these issues as I listed them out. You know, y'all may not have been aware of those, but I'm guessing that everybody had just one of these three responses. Right? Some of you may have had an immediate idea of what the right answer was to each of these issues. Others were probably aware that you didn't know what to think about these three issues and were anxious for me to tell you the right answer. And then there was the large group who said quietly and politely to themselves, um, who cares? Now, we're going to go through these. And as we do, you realize that there's really something right about each one of those responses. But as long as we have a little time together, let's just talk about them and see what we come up with. All right. Now, the first issue involves the 144,000 standing with the lamb on Mount Zion. And I want to start by reading the first five verses of chapter 14. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. All right, so Mount Zion has historically represented salvation, which means that these folks are obviously standing in the eschatological fulfillment of God's plan with the Lamb who was worthy to save them. The issue is whether or not this group represents all believers in some way, or just some special sect, a subset of believers that are special. Now, some scholars insist that the 144,000 seen with the Lamb are a select group of believers and don't represent everybody. Dispensationalists say that these are the literal 144,000 Jews saved at the end times, of course, that interpretation began in chapter 7 when this number was introduced. Remember, 144,000 were sealed by the Lamb. Some scholars think that they were Jews in chapter 7, so they need to be Jews here. 
Other scholars suggest that these are literal virgins who are a subset as the first fruits of all believers harvested in chapter 14. These are not all believers, but a special group of believers who have kept themselves literally pure and are gathered to the Lamb before the other believers are harvested. Then there are the scholars who say this is the same bunch we saw in chapter 7. And then in chapter 7, they represented all believers in a highly symbolic way, 12 times 12 times 1,000. They insist that their virginity is also symbolic, as it is in most prophecy, referring to adultery with false gods, right? So these are the ones who have kept themselves pure from the worship of the beasts and the dragon, and pure from denying the truth of the gospel and telling lies about Jesus. So the big question again is, which is right? And my answer is, are we still talking about this? Look, we covered this ground in chapter 7 when we saw that the 144,000 stand for all those sealed to come out of the great ordeal, all believers. I'm sure that's true here as well, but frankly, I just don't care to go through all that again. You see, there's a much bigger issue about these folks in chapter 14 that I would rather focus on, and we'll get into that in a few minutes. So for now, let's just say that the answer is, duh, they're representative, and there's a bigger issue going on, okay? Now, the second issue is whether or not we see two separate harvests in chapter 14, or that the two harvests actually describe the same event told from two different points of view. So let's read that section. Now we're skipping down to verses 14 to 20. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered in its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Now, some scholars insist that the two harvests described in chapter 14 are actually two separate harvests. Believers are gathered to the lamb in the first, and unbelievers are gathered for destruction in the second. It's significant that the Son of Man performs the first harvest, but another angel is called upon to perform the second, further emphasizing that these are two separate events. Others argue that every harvest collects both the wheat and the chaff, which are then separated on the threshing floor. And there's ample biblical support for this idea. Just look at Matthew 13. So scholars argue that this is one harvest described from two different points of view. The first focusing on the harvest act by the Son of Man, and the second emphasizing the destruction of unbelievers. So the big question is, which is right? And the big answer is, I don't care. I'm sorry, but I don't. I'm, I'm pretty sure this is the harvest, a single harvest, but the fact is the difference means very little in the grand scheme of things. Believers are harvested to salvation and unbelievers are harvested for not salvation. Now, the last issue involves the destiny of the unfaithful, those who reject Jesus. Do those people go to hell, a literal place where they are tortured for all eternity, or are they destroyed and simply cease to exist? 
This is an ongoing debate among theologians and lay folks alike. So let's start by reading the middle section. We're going to do verses 9 to 12. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image, for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Again, this is an ongoing debate. Some folks think those who go to hell are actually destroyed in the end and cease to exist. And the winepress of God's wrath thing from verse 20 kind of suggests that. It's also based on other things, not the least of which is that it makes God seem cruel to have him banish these folks who he claims to love to an eternity of torment. Others insist that hell is an actual place where unbelievers are tormented for all eternity. Verses 10 and 11 suggest that the torment goes on forever, for there is no rest for these folks. There is also other evidence from Revelation that suggests that folks who reject Christ join Satan and his minions in eternal punishment and torment. Now, I don't want to get into a long theological debate on this issue. Our focus in this episode is what chapter 14 says, right? Being tossed in the winepress of God's wrath sort of suggests destruction, but it's obviously a highly symbolic description of Judgment Day. But then there's all the other stuff which suggests this ongoing torment. So the big question again is, which one's right? And the big answer is, again, I don't care. I'm pretty sure this is ongoing torment. But think about it. It stinks either way, right? It's like asking, would I rather be bludgeoned with a hammer or a pipe wrench? Does it matter? Eternal separation from God is going to be so awful. Debating the eternal punishment of unbelievers might be unnecessary. I mean, I'm pretty sure there's a hell, but I certainly wouldn't wish that on anyone. Well, maybe on a few, but, you know, just special cases. You get my point, right? It's bad either way. So, let me sum all this up. Are the 144,000 all believers or a subset? And the answer? Been there, done that. Two, are there two harvests or just one? Well, it's six of one, half dozen of the other. And three, do believers suffer for all eternity or cease to exist? Well, I think that stinks either way. Right? So, so what? Now, I want to say I don't mean to be flippant here, and it may seem that I have casually dismissed the entire chapter and now have nothing to talk about. Au contraire, mon petit chou. You see, the more you wrestle with this text, the closer you move toward a more important revelation. You come to an interesting conclusion, and suddenly the rest of the minutiae just doesn't seem important anymore. The whole chapter dissolves into a moment of peace and assurance the answer to all the mayhem of the past three chapters. Suddenly understand why these visions were so important. Here's what I'm talking about. How many were sealed in chapter 7? 144,000. And how many are standing with the Lamb in Mount Zion in chapter 14? 144,000. So how many did Jesus lose? Zero. Remember how chapter 14 began, right? Let's take another look at those first five verses. It says, Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 
were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. You see how this ties in everything we've seen for, for all of our time in Revelation. No one can learn that song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. It's these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. These follow the Lamb wherever he goes, and they have been redeemed from humankind as first fruits. For God and the Lamb... And in their mouth, no lie was found. They are blameless, you see. They're all there. Every single one that was sealed in chapter 7 is still there with the Lamb. And if you remember, kind of a lot has happened since then, right? I mean, there was a prophecy and a promise of the persecution of the church. There was a dragon and a war in heaven. And Satan set his sights on persecuting the church. And there were these two awful beasts that no human can stand against. And here we are, after all that at chapter 14, and after all the mayhem and the scary visions and images, every single one that God sealed is still standing there. And once you see this, you start to remember the portraits of Jesus that John paints in his gospel. You ever go through the gospel of John? There's this section that's just a series of portraits of Jesus. It describes him as different things in different ways. And one of those portraits is of Jesus as the bread of life, it's in John 6, 35 to 40, which says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me. And anyone who comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. But raise it up on the last day. This indeed is the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Can I get an amen? How can I care about the silly debate over one harvest or two? How can I care about the silly debate over which consequence of rejecting Jesus is worse? How can I think of anything else but the promise of the Lamb who is worthy, that no matter what, he will not lose a single one of those who believe, who are sealed, on whom he has written three names. Remember the three names from Revelation 3.12? Do you remember that? If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You will never go out of it. I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Right? You write a name on something so you know who it belongs to. We're his. Now, sure, we face all kinds of crap. We lose our jobs and can't pay the bills. A loved one gets sick, and there seems to be no hope for a cure. Our lives sometimes seem to be crashing down around us, but we have a promise here in Revelation that this stuff is going to happen. We knew it was going to happen. And while we debate whether or not our suffering is the result of the devil, or our own bad decisions or sins, or the bad decisions of others, and while we debate why God allows our suffering, the fact is we're still suffering. And the debate gets me no closer to relief. And if you ask any suffering person if they'd rather have an answer to the question why or relief from their suffering, I bet they'd all choose relief. We like to ask why. But what if that's the wrong question? No, more than that. 
What if there is no answer to that question? Or what if the question itself is a lie? Like it doesn't even exist. What if why is something the deceiver threw out, hoping it would distract us from the real question? Right? The one that matters. What if the only real question is who? What if we ask that question? In chapter 14 comes the absolute promise that the lamb has lost none of the sealed. So are you God's or Satan's? Who? Who do you belong to? You know it's up to you, right? You choose. If you choose to belong to the Lamb, then you are sealed. And the promise in chapter 14 is that he has lost none of the sealed. They are all still there with him standing on Mount Zion, the symbol of their eternal salvation. I'm telling you this because 2020 was bad. Life sometimes is hard. Look, if you are suffering, I am pleased to tell you that no matter how bad it is, how illogical it might seem, The promise is not for light at the end of the tunnel. The promise is not for a respite. The promise is not for having your troubles worked out. The promise is for absolute redemption and eternal life during which God himself shall wipe away your tears. Holy cow. This is in the books. It's been written. And the lamb who is worthy will absolutely make this come to pass. There is no way for you to slip through his fingers. There is no way for the dragon to steal you away from him against his will and yours. If you choose the lamb, then no matter what you suffer, you are his and will join him on Mount Zion at the end, no matter what. That's a good promise, and that's a promise I can live with. Amen? All right, I want to pray for you right now. So again whatever you're doing. Keep your eyes on the road. Keep your eyes on what's going on. Just let your hearts pray with me now. Father, we uh, we have been through a lot this year, and, and maybe this past year has made us forget how much we go through all the time. It seems sometimes like life is a constant assault. It doesn't make sense. It's not fair. Lord, we uh, praise you today that it's not fair because we don't get fair from you. We get grace from you. We get forgiveness and redemption from you. We get promises from you that you will absolutely keep. And we praise you for that. Lord, we want to stand with you on Mount Zion. Protect us through all of this. Get us through all of this and bring us to you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, that does it. I'll see you in the next episode. Till then, peace.